This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. While I've got your attention, I'm letting you know about my new book, More Than Just a Baby, A Guide to Surrogacy for Intended Parents and Surrogates, is available on my website at sarahjefford.com. You can find all the details there. It is the only guide to surrogacy in Australia and it covers everything from the processes and laws, how to find a surrogate or intended parents, and everything in between from finding all the way through to the fourth trimester. You can find it on the website and you can also contact me if you have any questions. I'm at sarah at sarahjefford.com. In this episode, I chatted with Hayley, who is a donor-conceived person, and I've heard Hayley talk a number of times about her experience, which is really helpful as a resource for people who are considering becoming donors or parents through uh, donor conception to talk about what that means being a donor conceived person, particularly when they become an adult and have an opinion about what we did back before their conception. So I'm going to hand over to Haley. I have linked some really great resources in the blog post, including We Are Donor Conceived, which Haley talks about towards the end of this episode. Here is Haley. My name is Haley Smith. Um, I'm a donor conceived person. Uh, I'm 30 years old now and I found out when I was 12 that I was donor conceived um, and gosh it's funny I, you know it can be a really simple story a really complicated story so I, I was born in in 1989 but it turns out that I, I was um, or the donation I guess that that produced me if you like was uh, was created in the early to mid 80s uh, so sometimes I like to joke that I, I was a, a child of the 80s still somehow, uh, even though I was really only alive for a part of it, uh, and I was just chilling out in a vat for uh, about five years uh, prior to that. Um, so in some ways, my story almost starts there, uh, but I guess it, it, it fully started um, with my parents discovering that they couldn't conceive naturally. Uh, that it was my father who whose fertility um, was not sufficient to be able to naturally conceive a child uh, and so after doing some soul searching they they decided that they would go down the pathway of using donor conception um, fortunately for them they were, they were quite open with their family about it. In fact, I think it was actually one of my aunts who suggested donor conception um, as part of a family conversation that that was being had um, at the time. Uh, so, yeah, so they, they went down that pathway and fortunately uh, was reasonably simple for them. Um, it wasn't even though IVF was around back then, it was not required. I was a good old artificial insemination baby. Uh, and my mother had two treatments and has two children. So fortunately, uh, her fertility was sufficient that, uh, that we came into the world relatively simply, in a simple manner, I guess, compared to the struggles that they'd gone through beforehand. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's the, the kind of the beginning of the story. Do you know if your parents were given any advice about whether or not they should tell their children that they were donor conceived or how to tell you that you were donor conceived? From what I have been told, they, it wasn't discussed at all, um, which in some ways I'm grateful for because I've heard stories of, of people being conceived around that time who have said that their parents were told not to tell. And it sounds like that wasn't the experience that my parents had. Um, so my parents saw Dr. De Kretzer, uh, which would have been at Prince Henry's Hospital in the late 80s. Uh, and from their memory, De Kretzer never said, don't tell. Um, it was kind of just left up to them to decide what to do with that information, which I feel for them about actually. I, I think that probably given in Victoria, uh, the doctor, adoption legislation had already changed to facilitate open adoptions around that time. The fact that the clinics uh, in the 80s were not having that conversation with parents at all or, or having any real forward thought about that situation and how there might be potentially similarities um, in experience. I'm, I'm disappointed. I feel like perhaps the clinics could have been doing more to support their, support their patients through 
the process, which wasn't just about creating a baby, of course, because um, parenthood starts with creating a baby and, and, it, and it, you know, continues on with raising a human being. Uh, so the fact that it wasn't really discussed, I feel, was probably um, a bit of a disservice to my parents. But at the very least, I guess they were told, uh, they weren't told that they shouldn't tell, that they were told it was up to them. I think that was um, a bit of a gift in some ways. Mm. And how did you find out um, that you were donor conceived? So mum and dad uh, sat my brother and I down, it would have been the summer before I started high school, so I would have been 12. Um, and yeah, it's funny, I do have very strong and yeah, vivid kind of memories of, of the conversation and, and it was really challenging because I could tell that it was a very emotional topic for them and, and they hadn't been given resources about how to tell or, or um, the ways to tell or kind of even what to expect from us, I suppose, or what to do to support us through that process either. Um, so I remember them being a quite emotional, recounting the journey that they'd gone on to have my brother and I. It's funny, after that, it never really felt... It became just the new normal after that. It was a really challenging conversation. And I remember feeling a little bit like, I don't know, a bit shell-shocked perhaps um, because, it, you know, in some ways it changed the way I'd mentally framed my family quite a lot. But at the same time, you know, life went on. It was situation normal in, in, in every other sense. It didn't really change much at all, but it changed everything at the same time is often, often the way I describe it and I've heard other don't even see people kind of say the same same thing. Um, but I was fortunate uh, in, in conversations I've had with my parents more recently, it sounds like they were inspired to tell us, even though they didn't have support or guidance had to do it, uh, they were inspired to tell us because they'd known adoptees growing up and they knew that for adoptees, knowing the truth about how they came into the world was something that was quite important to them. Um, and so they, on their own, made that connection and I'm, I'm so proud of them for obviously investing quite a lot of thought into that situation and, and empathising with us, uh, again, with no kind of guidance or support from anybody else apart from their own conscious and love for us. So, uh, yeah, in many ways I know that 12 is probably quite old by today's standards in terms of, of disclosure of donor conception, but... Um, I don't really hold any feelings of, of resentment or, or anything like that um, because I guess I'm quite proud that mum and dad came to that conclusion on their own that it was the right thing to do when they could quite uh, as easily have, I don't know, just let it be and not told us at all, I suppose. Mm. So after finding out at 12, did you think at that time that you would track down your donor at all or did that even cross your mind? Yeah, it is. It's interesting to um, it's interesting to reflect on that. Um, I guess you know the fact that I found out at the start of my teen years, and you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on when you're a teenager, and everything's very important and dramatic. And there's high school, and there's boys, and there's friends, and there's drama, and all those things. Um, but I do recall at times, kind of reflecting on it, and perhaps not all that frequently. Uh, I think I started to tell some of my friends because it was just nice to be able to verbalise that information and, and to kind of process it that way. Um, but I do recall having occasional thoughts about the strange kind of situation where I knew I was related to somebody quite closely out in the world and I didn't know anything about who they were. Uh, and, you know, they could be anywhere, they could be anyone. So I think there was a thought in my mind that, oh, yeah, maybe when I turn 18, maybe I'll try and find out some more information. Um, it, would be, it would be interesting to know more about who this person was. But I think I certainly didn't think there was much chance of me being able to get that information beforehand. So it was a bit of a, I can't do anything about this right now. I'll, I'll park it. It's, it's sitting there on my brain and I'll revisit it when I'm a bit older. And when did you revisit it? Because I know that you investigated the idea of the DNA, uh, the consumer DNA sites. How did you come to that? Yeah, that was a bit of a journey in itself as well, actually. So I don't think I, I don't think I knew anybody else who was donor conceived uh, as a teen. Uh, 
And again, I think it was always kind of hanging out there in my brain and, and occasionally I would do a bit of research and I found out about the, uh, the voluntary register um, that the Victorian government holds. Uh, and it was through births, deaths and marriages at that time. Uh, so I put down some information on that when I was, I think I was 18 or 19. I was just old enough to be able to go into the city by myself and be self-sufficient enough to do that on my own. Uh, but nothing really came of that. There was no matches on the, the register. So I, I let that be. Uh, and then something, to be honest with you, I couldn't even tell you what it was. But something when I was about 23, 24, just kind of uh, reminded me or, or piqued my interest. And I started doing some more Googling just for information about, I don't know, I don't even really know what I was searching for, just more information about um, how I could find out more information. Yeah, you know, I'd really, I don't even really know what I was searching for. I think I just knew that there was, there was something that I needed to investigate. And so I did a bit of a dig on Google and I found um, the VARTA website. So that's the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority. Uh, and they had on their website uh, a brochure, brochure, that was a bit weird, <laughs> I said that weirdly. <laughs> so on the VARTA website, they had a, a link to uh, an adult donor conceived people's group like a, a meetup group. Uh, and so I decided to go along to that. Um, and that would have been about 2014. Uh, and meeting other donor conceived people for, for the first time was mind blowing. Um, and even just from the point of view of kind of going, oh, A, you know, there's other people who are like me, but also just feeling curious about this is, is okay. Like I'm not the only one, it's not something wrong with me. It's, it's something that's quite normal for, for other donor conceived people to be curious about. Uh, and I think that really changed the way I felt about things or maybe gave me the courage to start thinking about it more. And it was around that time that commercial DNA tests became available in Australia. So before that point, I think they were either prohibitively expensive or, or some of the companies weren't even shipping their tests into the country. So, for example, Ancestry at that time wasn't shipping tests to Australia. So I decided that maybe doing a DNA test was a nice first step, reasonably safe, find out a bit more about my ethnicity. You know, I've got, I've got red hair in my whole life. People have gone, oh, are you Irish? Are you Scottish? What's your heritage? And, and I've kind of had to go, oh... Well, I'm not really sure, actually. I'm not totally <laughs> sure what the answer to that question is. So I thought maybe I'll, maybe I'll be able to get that information. Maybe I'll be able to find out whether I'm a Scottish redhead or an Irish redhead, or maybe I'm just a plain old British redhead. I guess, well, you know, maybe I'll be able to find that out. So I, uh, I did a DNA test. In fact, you know what's really funny? I actually found a slip of paper today. I've been going through all my, my belongings with, with uh, isolation going on and I found the postal slip from the day oh. I sent off my DNA test. So that was uh, June 2015 actually was when I, when I sent off the test. Um, I was pretty povo and only just out of uni at that time. So it was a bit of a, an investment uh, but I yeah, sent off my DNA test and a few weeks later got back my results uh, and didn't find anything too mind-blowing. Um, I think it was kind of yeah, broadly British, Irish, maybe a bit of Scandinavian kind of test results in terms of ethnicity. Uh, but what was really interesting was that I had also a match list and I didn't have any close matches on family tree DNA, but I did have a couple of second to third cousins um, that I ended up kind of reaching out to and just finding out I guess a little bit about their family history and where their families had kind of come from as a way of trying to dig into that a little bit more. The really interesting thing was so I reached out to my top match um, who shared with me a bit of his family tree. There was nothing that super stood out in terms of connecting me to anybody uh, and at that stage I, I hadn't met any donor conceived people who'd been able to find out who their their donor was through DNA testing um, but I had another person message me actually and she said look I can see you, you connect with a lot of people a lot of my family have done tests and I can I can see that you connect with quite a lot of them and, and I'm curious about how you fit into the picture 
And I emailed back and I said, oh, look, um, you know, I'm more than happy to try and figure it out, but actually I'm, I'm donor conceived. So uh, if it turns out that we're connected on my paternal line, uh, I'm not sure that I'll be able to figure out where it is that I fit into your family tree. Um, and it just so happened, I was, I was so blessed in this regard. The, the lady that I had been emailed by was just this family tree whiz. Like she'd written books on family history. She, she knew the family tree back to front. She knew all the connections. She knew how all the different families had ended up in Australia. Uh, so she was just this wealth of information. Um, and so between her family tree information that she knew and the family tree information that the first match had shared with me, his family tree, and also using a little bit of information that I'd been able to get from the central registry around that time, which just gave me basic details about, about my biological father's year of birth, for example, we were able to narrow down a couple of possibilities. Uh, and then I was able to find where the family tree of my first match, where his family tree intersected this woman's family tree, uh, which ended up connecting, connecting the dots effectively and all the other matches that I made all fitting to the puzzle if that person was my biological father. So all the kind of pieces came together and it seemed very likely that this, this person who kind of came together at the junction of these two family trees, if he was my biological father, then all the other matches that I had on my list made sense, which is effectively what they call um, like mirror trees or triangulation. That kind of thing is kind of the, the technical terms that get used in genealogy circles. Uh, but basically it is, it's just like trying to find the, the puzzle piece that connects all the family trees together. Um, and, and if, if I'd not met that woman, uh, if that, if, she hadn't emailed me, I, I wouldn't have ever been able to find out that information. Uh, but that was incredible. It was, wow. yeah, I remember seeing his name for the first time and realising that that's where it all connected and just sitting, feeling totally, oh, I mean, shell-shocked isn't even the right term. It's just like time completely froze and it was a bit out of body and it was, yeah, quite incredible. Wow, fascinating. So... <laughs> Um, I'm still learning about how these sites work, but that doesn't mean that he had uploaded his DNA. It just means that all somebody's done the family tree with enough matches that you can kind of work out where those bits intersect. Did you then work out his name and everything else from that? So it, it turned out that um, the match who the, the woman who I'd matched, uh, who knew heaps of information about her family tree, uh, even though she'd never met him, she knew enough about the extended family tree that she knew his name. Uh, I think she, her, her family tree research had been that extensive that it had really filtered down um, quite far because, uh, for example, my, yeah, my biological father was her third cousin. So she'd not even met him. Um, but obviously through sharing family tree information with other people who connected on that broader family tree, she knew of all the offspring of the various families on that tree. Uh, and, and the first match that I had, the, the, the man who I'd matched as my top match, he was second cousins with my biological father. And again, I'm not sure that they have met so it's this fascinating thing where, yes, my, my biological father hadn't, didn't have to test, he, but he didn't even have to know personally uh, the people he matched with. It's just that the family tree information and I guess the, the extended family information was shared well enough in those families that um, they were able to share his name with me. Um, and what I find, I guess, in some ways fascinating and terrifying about this whole thing mm. is that if I choose not to upload my DNA and somebody that I've genetically related to decides to upload their DNA, people can try and work out who we are based on all of that, that mapping and the, the puzzle pieces. So in some ways, the real lesson, which I always say, and I know that you do as well, is that if you're going to make a baby with a donor, you can bet your bottom dollar that somebody's going to be able to work out how everyone is connected, even if you don't want them to. If they do a DNA test, mm -hmm. the chances are they'll be able to put the puzzle pieces together, really. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it, it's probably, I guess I feel like it's perhaps negligent that there are clinics anywhere in the world who are still promising 
anonymity because they know full well that this situation exists and, and has existed. So I guess I did it in 2015, that's five years ago now. Um, but it's become so commonplace. Uh, there are people who volunteer their time to, to do this matching and they do it for free for lots of people in lots of different situations, adoptees, donor conceived people, people conceived from one night stands, um, or people even if they find out that their grandparent was adopted, you know, they might um, enlist help to try and figure out uh, where the, their grandparent has come from. Uh, so it is, it is fascinating and I agree, it is a little bit terrifying, but that's a possibility. But uh, I guess, the fact that it, it is the reality that we're living in, it does seem unhelpful that anyone would promise anybody that you could remain anonymous in 2020. It just is, is not a promise anybody can keep. Yeah, and I think also really coming back to that, um, the fact is that it's the donor-conceived people's rights that we really need to focus on. That if you're making a baby with a donor, you don't really get the right to withhold information from them, whether you're the clinic or one of the parents or whoever or the donor they will they should have a right to access that information and if you're participating in that um, process of creating a person with donor conception then you need to know that they have more rights than you do even if they don't exist at the time that you're talking about it yeah um mm. so i want to come back to your story in a minute in terms of you tracking down your donor but I'm aware that a lot of donor-conceived people in Victoria, for example, have actually found out that they were donor-conceived by doing one of these tests. Have you spoken with donor-conceived people that have had that experience? Yeah, yeah. Sadly, it's very common. Uh, so there's lots of people that I've, I've met through, through various groups online who've had that experience where it's only been after a DNA test that they've discovered that they're donor conceived. Um, but personally, I've also had that experience um, when Ancestry DNA finally became available in, in Australia. I, I thought it would be worthwhile being on all the DNA databases in case some of my siblings ever decided to test um, because sadly there's not really many other great ways for Victorian donor conceived people to meet their siblings. Um, it's really just the voluntary register or DNA testing at this point in time. So I did an ancestry DNA test and I, I got my results back, um, saw uh, a young woman's name at the top of my list and I looked at the amount of DNA that I shared with this person and I guess having done a bit of DNA sleuthing before I had a fair idea that there was a good chance this woman was my half-sister um, based on the amount of DNA that we shared. Um, and we did start messaging back and forth, kind of trying to figure out how we were connected. Uh, and unfortunately, it did become clear that she hadn't been told she was donor-conceived, but that that was the most likely reason that we connected. Um, and look, fortunately, you know, for her and her family, that didn't... Uh, cause too many major dramas um, and she and I have been able to form a, a really lovely friendship um, but it was really complicated and I guess from a personal point of view it was very challenging for me knowing that I was perhaps putting at risk um, family dynamics and, and the relationship she had with her parents by being the one to kind of force the secret to be uncovered. Um, and I think I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure around that that was really unpleasant. But, you know, in the scheme of things, that was nothing compared to the potential ramifications for her and her family and, and what that might have kind of uh, led to. But, you know, in our, that circumstance, fortunately, it was, it was uh, a pretty good outcome. Uh, but nonetheless, I guess it's one of those things that I imagine parents would prefer to be the ones to have that conversation and, and to have it in a loving way rather than for it to be spilled in this potentially very messy, very complicated, very emotional way. Mm. I've interviewed um, Kate Byrne from VARTA about these very conversations and what, the way she frames it, and I know you would have heard her say that yourself, is around telling your child that story and wanting it to be a story of love and that their creation was of love and really having control over how you frame that story for your child because it is their story and hopefully not having them find out that they're donor conceived through DNA testing and having to hear it from somebody else 
but telling them early and being the first ones to have that opportunity to tell them that story because that's what you want for their um, for their experience of finding out that they're donor conceived and who their donor might be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So come back to this story about you found, find out, number one, you've um, found out who potentially your biological father is and then also found donor conceived siblings. At what point did you then make contact with your donor? So even though I, I knew the name of my, my biological father from about 2015, I think, I think I'm quite a, a, like a reflective and perhaps anxious person. And I think I knew that it could potentially, again, be quite confronting for someone to receive an email out of the blue from, from someone saying, oh, by the way, hi there, I'm your, your donor conceived offspring. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I think I, I held off from making that contact independently because I was concerned not only about whether that would be a really confronting way of me making, making contact and therefore risking the relationship not progressing any further from that point because of the fact that it was so confronting, but also I guess the fact that I had a sense that there was a chance I'd be the first person to reach out and make contact with him uh, you know, in terms of people who've been conceived using his donations. And I didn't want to stuff that up for all my siblings. I think there was a lot of pressure on me to make sure that I didn't cause issues for other people as well. Um, so I, I kind of tried to be happy for a number of years, just knowing that I, I knew his name and, and cheekily doing a bit of Facebook stalking and, and getting just tidbits of information that kind of, um, it just tided me over for a, a period of time, I suppose. Um, but it was after I made contact with my sister on Ancestry that I kind of went, oh, maybe now's an okay time. Maybe... Maybe, I guess to be fair as well, so after that, at that point, the legislation had changed in Victoria. So prior to um, about 2016, um, it was run through births, deaths and marriages. If I wanted to make contact with him, I would have had to go through births, deaths and marriages. Um, And I felt like that was still quite a blunt way of of somebody making contact. And I knew the new legislation was kind of in the, the pipeline. So when it changed over to being under VATA's jurisdiction uh, and I knew that there was a greater degree of kind of counselling and support for both me and for for my biological father in that process. Um, And having met my sister, I kind of thought maybe now's an okay time. And also it's a little bit awkward that I I know this information about this person who I'm 99% sure is the right guy. But if my sister asks, like, maybe I shouldn't share that unless I'm really sure. So it was this kind of awkward situation again to be in. So I think, and actually it's interesting as well, I think I also felt like maybe I had a bit more security doing it after that point because in my head I thought, well, at least I've got her. At least I've got some connection out of this and there's something that I can hold on to even if I end up being rejected by this person this donor at least I know I've got that and and I can kind of lean on that so it was kind of a few a bit of a confluence of of um events and situations that led me to go okay now's the time uh and I so I applied I applied through the central register um very anxiously feeling like yeah just the the uncertainty of it all not really knowing what I was going to get back was challenging but I was extremely fortunate I got a a call back from Kate at Barta within about a week of my application being launched Um, and Kate couldn't sing his praises enough she said he's one of the nicest donors I've ever spoken to and he's this lovely guy and he's on holidays but he promises he'll uh, he'll reply to you um, when he gets back in a week's time and and he's excited to you know have a conversation with you um, and just the feeling of, of like overwhelming relief and like excitement and joy and 
I guess, yeah, all that nervous tension kind of leading to that point. I, I have, again, this very vivid memory of exactly where I was when I was having that phone conversation with Kate and just bawling, <laughs> just bawling um, because it is such an unknown. Uh, but, yeah, that's, I guess, wow. the story of, of how we started being in contact and that was about, well, I guess that's about almost three, three years ago now. <laughs> You've had contact with him. Do you know how many donor-conceived siblings that you have from his donations? Yeah. So according to the Central Register in Victoria, there were 22 of us conceived using his donations. Uh, but interestingly, I've also, uh, through conversations with him, um, become aware that they probably are also siblings in South Australia, which due to the uh, wonderful bureaucracy of state boundaries uh, means that I, I can't find out any information really about how many are there, uh, which is a bit frustrating at times. Um, and look, you know, perhaps with enough digging and, and perhaps uh, it would have to be my biological father who would have to do that digging. I don't know that I would be allowed to because uh, according to paper, I'm not connected to the South Australian siblings whatsoever. It's probably a different donor code. Um, so there's kind of potential that maybe we could find out more information, but uh, it's, it's probably a bit of a long shot. So I guess I kind of think about it like I've got, um, well, there were 22 of us plus X, maybe it's another, another 10, another 20. I guess I might not ever know the answer to that question. And how does it feel, I guess, to know that there are 22 plus people out there that share DNA with you? Is that... Is that a scary prospect, knowing that there's people out there that you may never meet? Yeah, it is. It's, it's complicated. It's really complicated because the, um, I guess the thing about it is the, the relationships I've been able to form with, with my half-siblings uh, through donor conception have been, they've been beautiful and they've been so fulfilling and they've been super validating. Um, and I, I can't imagine my life without them now. Uh, but equally, I think there is there's a desire in me to know them all, which is complicated and probably not totally feasible to hold relationships with that many people. Uh, and particularly, you know, with you know, all of them have different family dynamics as well, of course. So, so their situations and whether they know or not, whether whether they're curious, whether they want to have a relationship with me, you know, there's all those factors at play. Uh, and I guess I w I'm quite lucky. Um, so I'm, I'm married and I'm certain that my husband is not my half-sibling, but I do have siblings who are not married and not in long-term relationships and who are facing a dating scene now knowing that there are siblings out there who really they probably don't want to be dating. Uh, and the fact that they don't have... The fact that they don't even have access to the name of their sibling so that they can make that active choice on their own behalf to avoid dating a sibling um, is really challenging for them. Um, and I think if I were in their shoes, I would feel the same. You know, I think for me, I would love to have relationships with these people if they're willing. But the, at the, fact, the fact that at the very least, we can't even know who they are seems really risky and, and perhaps a little bit um, paternalistic. Uh, that we can't make that decision for ourselves even just to know who they are, even if those relationships never, uh, and I guess by relationships, even if those um, connections never lead to a friendship between, between us all, just being able to know who they are, they are seems like a reasonably fundamental and important kind of right, perhaps. Mm. How many siblings have you connected with? Uh, so... I always have to pause and try and count them up now, which is not a bad problem to have, I suppose. Um, but my biological father has, has two sons, so I've met them both, and they're wonderful. Uh, I've met two sisters through Ancestry, uh, and they both have a sibling each who um, was also conceived using the same donor, so therefore they're my half-sibling as well. Uh, and I also have recently connected with a, a brother who, who made contact with the central register um, and that's a bit of a, a new relationship and, and seeing kind of where that goes and um, you know whether maybe we become friends is, is a bit of an ongoing process but um, I'm very fortunate maybe there's 
something in the genes that we all seem to be very warm, welcoming people. <laughs> so I'm, I'm feeling pretty positive about that. And, and it's really lovely. It, yeah, it's really lovely to form some of those friendships. I'm so I guess, in sorry to answer your question, I don't think I actually told you the number, did I? So what two, four, I guess, oh, and including my own brother. So I, I've met in person six siblings. Okay. Um, I'm interested in what you said about how, you know, 22 possible siblings or more out there, how much time in your day do you have for relationships with all these people and what does that look like? And as a donor myself, there are, sometimes I have to count too, um, there are four children out there, two of them are mine that I raise, but there's another two that are from my eggs and there's some embryos on ice that might also become human beings. And I, as an egg donor, having to think about how much time in my day do I have for relationships with people that I have helped to conceive um, their children or helped them having children. Um, and also when they grow up and they have children, will they also want a relationship with me? And that can be a bit confronting. You know, do they want a relationship that I don't have time for or do I want a relationship that they won't want with me? And it's that kind of unknown stuff that, you know, that's what connects us but also is a bit scary because we don't know what the future holds and is a, probably a very good reason that we have the family limits for donors mm -hmm. now that, you know, you can't actually be a donor for more than um, 10 families in Victoria at least. And there are good reasons for that, including that we don't want these siblings dating each other, but also because it's important for them to be able to connect with their donor and donor siblings if they want to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your relationship. You've been calling him your biological father and I've made reference to him being your donor. Tell me about the relationship, but also about the language that you use around him. Mm. It's a really interesting conversation and it, it again feels quite complex. I, um, I, I've kind of chosen to go with biological father when I'm, I'm needing to describe the context of our relationship. I've, I've started leaning towards biological father for a few reasons. One of which is that um, as a young woman myself, people have started to sometimes assume that when I talk about my donor, they think that I am using a donor to have a baby, um, which feels very awkward when, I'm <laughs> when I think about it. Um, but also um, part of it was that I had had a number of experiences where I talked about or I confided in people that I wanted some more information on, on my donor. Um, and when I said that, there was frequently responses along the lines of, oh, but he's just a donor. He just donated. You know, why do you need to know about him? He's not, not your real dad. Um, very dismissive language, very, um, not dehumanising, but I guess, yeah, very um, distant. It was almost, they talked about it like it was this distant, irrelevant thing. But for me, you know, there was this recognition that that part, well, not just part, I guess half of my physical being is from this stranger. Uh, and I guess I spent a little bit more time getting to know adoptees and adoption and the way that legislation had changed over time for adoptees and recognising that they were allowed to talk about their biological mother or father or birth mother and father, but for some reason, um, completely beyond my control, of course, because no one gets to choose how they come into the world. But because of the circumstances of my birth, I was for some reason not allowed to use the term biological father and that kind of seemed wrong actually you know every every person has two genetic parents uh, and I'm just like every other person even if I was conceived slightly differently so it was a little bit of a needing to reclaim that term for myself and also as a justification as to why it was that I was curious you know this man is my biological father I share half my DNA with him um, and it's okay for me to be curious about that, I think. And people seem to understand more when I'm having a conversation with, with people I haven't spoken to about this before. If I say that I, I, you know, have met my biological father, they understand, A, who he is, the connection he has to me, but also um, the fact that it's normal for people to want to know who their biological father is. 
so that's that's probably what led me to, to trying to use that term in place of of donor there were a few factors kind of going on mm. and tell me about your relationship with him when were you able to meet him in person so i, I met him uh in person in 2017 so he lives interstate which made it a little bit tricky but in some ways it kind of made it work okay uh, because we, we were forced to do a bit of emailing first and then talking on the phone and then Skyping. And so it was kind of this gradual progression of, of our relationship, which then made it feel a little bit more comfortable, I suppose, because it is this strange thing, right? Meeting somebody as an adult who happens to share half your DNA. That's not a, that's not a normal situation that, that happens to most people, right? Um, so we had this kind of slow progression, uh, but then he was down in Victoria to see some family. Uh, and we discovered that we both love Laksa. So we went out for Laksa for dinner in, in Melbourne um, and just had a big chat um, that felt very natural. Uh, and in fact, what was really interesting, and this is perhaps what I wasn't expecting, but was maybe the biggest gift of it all, was at the end of the night, I remember you know, saying goodbye, coming home and seeing my face in the mirror and feeling like I was seeing it for the first time, like there were things about my face that I could place that I didn't even really realise that I couldn't place. But it's just like all of a sudden all the pieces came together and I was able to look in the mirror and go, I know, I know where I come from. Like I can see, I can see now where I come from and who I am makes a lot of sense and, and I'm okay with that. That was this really powerful moment um that's amazing but, that is really powerful yeah. just hearing you say that that's amazing yeah wow it was yeah incredible um but i guess since then so that was that was the first time we met and, and since then um we we tend to meet up whenever we're in each other's uh state um we will catch up and have a meal um i've met his wife who is fortunately very supportive as well because that's not always the case um, particularly when you're talking about donors from the 80s and 90s and, and earlier um, so I've met his his family I've met his sons they've been around to my house for a meal play board games together uh, it just is this really beautiful friendship that has developed uh, that again once once again feels very natural um, which perhaps surprised me at first but again the more I get to know him and the more I get to know my siblings and, and kind of realising how weirdly normal it is to find that you're similar in disposition to these people who should theoretically be strangers. Um, it just has become the new normal. I almost, I'm almost not surprised by it anymore. I kind of just go, oh, yes, this will be, this will probably be pretty, pretty easy, probably not guaranteed, but, you know, um, it's just become my new normal, I suppose. That's amazing. So I want to talk more broadly about the donor conception community because I know you have contact with other donor conceived people. Um, and I guess really just talking about some of the experiences that haven't been so positive and also about donor conceived people's ideas about how we do donor conception, whether we should do donor conception at all. And if we are going to do it, how should we make sure that the rights of the donor conceived person are front and centre? Do you have any thoughts about that yourself or, or experiences you'd like to share from other donor-conceived people? Yeah, it is, it's really complicated and I think it gets, it can be coloured so much by our own experiences um, and often by, um, I guess, the, the obstacles that are often put in place um, for donor-conceived people. Um, you know, that can influence people's feelings about the process and, and what should be done better. And, um, and interestingly, Sarah, what I've found as well is that it's not only, there are some donor can see people who, who are um, told early, given access to siblings and their, their donors um, and are totally fine with the whole process, but then there are equally some people in that situation who still feel that perhaps things could be done better. Um, and what I've also found is that sometimes people in those situations, they still, even, even if they've had love and support the whole way through, there is a real cultural um, push towards donor-conceived people and probably children in general 
um, supporting their parents, particularly if they've if they've conceived into families where it's con it's perceived as non-conventional. You know, there's a lot of love for their parents and and wanting to support them and and, and passionately believing in their parents' rights, which makes total sense. But sometimes that comes at the consequence of them feeling like they're able to be curious about their genetic heritage. So it's this really interesting thing where, you know, some donor can see people find out like hit a whole lot of obstacles and, and that their experience is really coloured by that. But I think it, it can be coloured as well by, by that circumstance too. Um, and I guess that in some ways ties to um, the idea that donor conception, oh, look, I think currently, I think it's fair to say still currently, there is almost a view that the child isn't an equal party, um, that it's all about what, you know, the parents desperately wanting a child, uh, and it is all about donors, you know, potentially wanting an anonymity or potentially wanting to feel like they're being really altruistic and helping other families, and the focus is all on that part of the equation and sometimes I think it gets missed that the child is an equal party, at the very least an equal party, um, but as you kind of mentioned, in some ways they're, they're a bit of a, a disempowered party in that relationship and so therefore elevating their interests is, is really important. Uh, so again, it's one of those things where even, even in circumstances where I think we've come a long way. I think the fact that it is more common for parents to be open, um, and I think it's more common for parents to facilitate relationships between donor siblings, which is wonderful. And I think it's become more common even for parents to facilitate relationships between donors and offspring. Um, I think the fact that, that those things are happening more frequently shows that we are starting to understand that the, that, um, the experience of, of the child in this is probably where the focus needs to be. But I think still even the, the culture around it, for me, for me, I, I certainly think, you know, openness to honesty, honesty, facilitating those relationships, normalising it, um, realising that there's enough love to go around and that a child can have two parents in their life and a, a donor biological parent or two donor biological parents and or, you know, um, a sur surrogate mother perhaps, you know, that there's room in a child's life for all of that and, and there's no competition. But I think there still is an issue that we have that feeds into all of that where the child sometimes can feel like they're there for everybody else rather than having a voice themselves and I think when I think about donor conception I feel like we would do things a lot differently if we really thought about the fact that the child is a person who will become a grown adult human being one day they'll have their own thoughts and experiences and that they're allowed to have those thoughts and experiences and, and to have interests and desires and to want relationships I think all of that's really normal and if we perhaps focused on that at the beginning I think that would change a lot of, of the way we relate to donor conception as a society, broadly speaking. I think that's, you've articulated it so well, thank you. Um, what I also wanted to say to you and also other donor conceived people is that these conversations have actually allowed me as a donor to think so much more and deeply about the donations that I've made and what that means for the donor conceived people and also for my own children. Uh, when they do grow up and have opinions about what we've done that, you know, you're right. When I went off and did this lovely thing where I was a donor, I didn't really have the future child front and center. I had my donation and the intended parents as front and center. And that talking with donor conceived adults has been really important to clarify my thoughts on that and to then refocus on these children who one will one day have an opinion about what I've done and what their parents have done. So your advocacy is amazing, but it's also, I think, really important to continue having these conversations so that we can continue to strive to do donor conception better, um, not for the parents, not for the IVF clinics, not for the donor, but for the children that will one day be conceived and are being conceived through donor conception. Mm. Yeah. 
thank you for chatting with me. This has been really amazing. I love having a chat with you. It's been so good hearing your story. Um, if there's any resources, I was going to link people to things like Kate Burns' podcast episode and Barter, but if there's any other resources for people that might be considering donor conception, either as donors or parents, can, uh, can you tell me where we would send people for information? Yeah. Um, look, it's one of those things. There are, there's obviously, you know, a million different Facebook groups out in the world uh, and there's uh, probably almost as many different websites that will talk about it. And I guess trying to wade through that and find ones that give you that breadth of, of understanding of, of experience is, is challenging. Um, there is a, a web page that was created by donor conceived people called wearedonorconceived.com. Uh, and there's a lot of share stories that are shared on that website from a, a multitude of experiences. Um, and, and it can be pretty heavy, I guess, you know, it's natural to talk about the challenges, um, as well as, you know, some of the really joyous things that come out of it, including, you know, relationships that are formed. Um, but in terms of kind of getting a breadth of experience, uh, I think it's really valuable for people to read up on lots of different stories. And, and look, even in terms of uh, adoption uh, resources, even though the experience is different and there are certainly differences uh, between donor conception and adoption. What I found delving more into that space for my own learning and knowledge is that there is a degree of commonality of experience of, of longing to understand who you are and where you come from and wanting to be able to form those relationships with people and, and it not being a competition between, between parents and, and birth parents or anything like that. I think looking into those kind of resources, I think adoption has probably had more time for those resources to be developed and there's probably a better understanding of adoption uh, in that sense. So that's another thing that people might choose to look into. Um, and I guess, you know, kind of harking back to the start of my story, it was, it was those kind of conversations that were being had about adoption when my parents were conceiving that facilitated my story being perhaps as positive as it as it is so that would be another thing that people perhaps could think about looking into as well great thank you i will link we are donor conceived on the post so that people can go and have a look because that's been a good resource for me as well thank you mm -hmm. Haley. it's been amazing thank you sarah it's always good to have a chat yeah thank you Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you are looking for more information, you can find it on the blog. Listen to more podcast episodes at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at sarah at sarahjefford.com.